Hello, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. Do you have anything to contribute for the How Are You segment? Uh, not really. Okay, great. I'd say we just get into it, because okay. if you want me to tell you the whole history of a country, we gotta, yeah, we gotta I, rock I, and roll. I realized today when you were telling me how much research you had done and how much stuff you had to tell me that I had made a poor decision in asking you no. to tell me the history of a country. No, it, I wanted to, and I really thought it was going to be like, oh, well, all the juicy stuff is around the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and it's super not. The juiciest <gasps> stuff is in, like, the medieval times. Ooh. So that was a shock to me. So by the time I got to the 1900s, I was like, we're going to blow right through this. Mm-hmm. We've heard it before, you know? Mm-hmm. Same same story, different characters. Okay, well... Um, so, not to spoil anything, but I think we should just jump right in. Okay, okay. So, you asked me to talk about veganism. Yeah. Y- your main question was, like, who was the first vegans? Mm-hmm. I'll get into that a little bit, but I did a broader cool topic of VK. So, veganism is the practice of abstaining from the use of animal products, particularly in one's diet. Mm-hmm. Dietary vegans are vegans who only are vegan in terms of their diet. Like, mm-hmm. they still, like, use animal fur or like they don't have a problem right, they wear like using it in yeah, yeah, other yeah. forms yeah um, but they don't consume meat eggs dairy products or any other animal derived substances mm-hmm. some people refer to these people as strict vegetarians oh there's some shit um, there yeah well also <laughs> there's some beef. the term veganism <laughs> hasn't like the term vegan hasn't existed for as long as the practice of it has so before they had the word vegan it was just like a type of vegetarianism okay ethical vegans follow a viet a vegan diet but also oppose the use of animals for any purpose such as leather right environmental veganism is the avoidance of animal products on the premise that industrial farming of animals is environmentally damaging and unsustainable okay which i think is part of it for me yeah you know mm-hmm. i think i'm mostly an environmental vegan and then a little bit of a dietary vegan. Or I'm not even any of those. Because you're not I, a vegan. No. <laughs> I'll take it back. <laughs> According to the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and very similar organizations in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, as well as Harvard Medical St- School, all agree that a well-planned vegan diet is appropriate and healthy for all stages of life, including infancy and pregnancy. Oh. So all the people out there who say, like, we well, are not getting enough protein are wrong. Mm-hmm. It is a perfectly healthy way to live and be healthy as long as it, like any dietary choice, as long as it's well-planned. Right. And you're getting enough of the nutrients you need from what you are eating. Of course. The German Society for Nutrition disagrees with this attitude and does not recommend vegan diets for children, adolescents, or pregnant or breastfeeding women because they basically think, you know, growing children and women who are growing children Mm -hmm. are (laughs) using both ways the word is used should have more protein. Right. But again, all there the There are other, proteins besides meat. Yeah, there's... I'm pretty sure I've been told that there's more protein in vegetables than there is in meat. But I'm not a dietitian or a health <laughs> expert or a nutritionist, so no one take my advice on anything. Right. Vegans, uh, their diets tend to be higher in fiber, magnesium, folic acid, vitamin C, vitamin E, iron, and phytochemicals. And... A vegan diet lowers the risk of type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, and heart disease. And it's better for the environment. That's true. They also, vegan diets also tend to be lower in calories, saturated fat, cholesterol, long chain omega-3 fatty acids, 
vitamin D, calcium, zinc, and vitamin B12. Now, vitamin B12 is kind of the tricky one because that um, has to do with blood disorders Mm -hmm. if you have a deficiency of it and neurological issues. So that is one that if you do choose to be vegan, either look into vegetables that you can eat that are high in B12 and make sure you eat a lot of them or look into supplements. Mm -hmm. An unbalanced vegan diet, which is really just when you eat a lot of junk food and carbs and not as many vegetables. Mm -hmm. Um, Some say can lead to nutritional deficiencies um, that would cancel out the benefits of a vegan diet and could lead to serious health issues. But again, these issues could be prevented with the correct foods to eat and potentially supplements. Mm -hmm. The term vegan was coined by Donald Watson in 1944 when he co-founded the Vegan Society in the United Kingdom. The meaning initially was non-dairy vegetarian when it first started, but the society would go on to eventually abstain from eggs, honey, animal milks, butter, and cheese as well, which is what veganism is in general now. Although I feel like honey's kind of up in the air. I know some people some are wishy washy yeah. on bees. Yeah. <laughs> some people are pro honey, some people are anti honey. I'm personally pro. Pro honey. But again, I'm not a bee. Yeah, well, I've heard it's not good for bees to not. I think. More... I think there are ethical ways of collecting honey that is good for bees. Yes. I think the bigger problem is beeswax and the other mm. things that we use bees for. Interesting. That's more of the no. issue. I'm going to do some research on honey. And wax. <laughs> okay, so the history of, like, who has been vegan in the world. Mm-hmm. The uh, vegetarianism, because, again, the word vegan didn't exist until 1944. Right. Uh, vegetarianism can be traced to the Indus Valley civilization in 3300 to 1300 BCE. I just always hear that part of history of the world, I guess, where he's just naming different civilizations. <laughs> yeah. In the Indian subcontinent, particularly in northern and western ancient India. Which makes sense to me because as a a vegetarian, I find it so easy to find options to eat on like Indian menus, like Mm -hmm. more so than other. Yeah, there's a lot of Southeast Asia dishes that are very vegetarian friendly. Yeah, exactly. There are many examples of Indian philosophers and emperors who were known to be vegetarians, Mm -hmm. including Chandragupta. Mm Mm-hmm. And a bunch more. And there are many well-known Greek philosophers, thinkers, and poets, including Plutarch, Ovid, and Seneca the Younger, who were all vegetarians. Pythagoras may have been a vegetarian. (gasps) Now, we've talked about him a couple times. I want that on a shirt. Pythagoras may have been a vegetarian. (laughs) Well, his life is considered really obscure, and there's a lot of, like, Who's a hippie? Contradicting information about uh-huh. it. And a lot is dispute about what's actually known about him. But uh, it is known, though, that he, he had a very specific diet. And he prohibited his followers from eating beans and oh. from wearing woolen garments. Now, this guy named Eudoxus mm-hmm. of Cnidus. It's C-N-I-D-U-S. C-I-N. C-N-I. C-N-I. Yeah, that's where I'm... C-N-I-D-S. Yeah, sure. Canidus. Canidus. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> of Canidus, who was a student of Archytas and Plato. Yeah. Okay, we know that. Uh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wrote, Pythagoras was distinguished by such purity and so avoided killing and killers that he not only abstained from animal foods, but even kept his distance from cooks and hunters. So it sounds like he was a vegetarian, but also... 
I don't know if you can say that that counts as vegetarianism because that's such a specific yeah that's like like subsection of vegetarianism. Yeah, it feels like more like a keto diet or something. Yeah, it like one of those I don't understand why, where beans come from. I don't know. I don't get. I don't get that one. I don't know. Pythagoras is, is a mystery. <laughs> the only thing I understand about him is his theorem. Uh, <laughs> one of the earliest known vegans was the Arab poet Al Maari, who lived in the 10th century CE, uh, and they argued that veganism was good for your health. They also believed in the transmigration of souls, that basically that... If you ate an animal, you were yeah soul. Yeah, that all creatures had souls, yeah. and they might have believed in reincarnation. It didn't exactly use that wordage, mm-hmm. but it, if souls can go from one creature to another, another then yeah. why is it morally okay to eat one and not the other? Yeah. I see um, that logic. That yeah. makes sense to me. Yeah, they believe that animals had souls just as humans did, and they deserve the same type of justice. So we're skipping ahead a bunch because there's fine. not <laughs> there's not as much mention of veganism in between these times. But in the 19th century, uh, there was more of a presence of veganism than there had been before, specifically in the UK and the United States. Mm-hmm. Veganism at the time was just considered strict vegetarianism. Okay. In 1813, the poet Percy Shelley, oh. Mary Shelley's husband, published A Vindication of the of Natural Diet, advocating for abstaining from animal food and spirituous liquors. Oh. Which interesting. Are, seem like different things to me, but I guess he's just a healthy him. guy, you know? Yeah. In 1815, London physician William Lamb stated that a water and vegetable diet could cure anything from tuberculosis to acne. Okay. Now, let's not go that far. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big statement. It is a big statement. It is healthy, although water and vegetable, that sounds so bland and sad. <laughs> he said that animal food was a habitual irritation and that milk eating and flesh eating are but branches of a common system and they must stand or fall together. Now, I don't like how he says flesh eating. Yeah. <laughs> We're not zombies. No, 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 no. In the 1830s, this guy named Sylvester Graham created Graham's Meatless Diet, mm-hmm. uh, which consisted of fruits, vegetables, water, and homemade bread made of stone ground flour, which was used as a popular health remedy in the United States. So, like anytime someone was sick, they'd be like, go on Sylvester's diet or Graham's oh. diet. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. In the 1830s and 40s, several vegan communities were formed. Ooh, this is what I wanted to know. The weird hippies. The weird hippies. Like, or mm-hmm. who were seen. They're not weird hippies, but they were seen as weird hippies. Yeah. Well, I think these people probably were. Um, <laughs> the biggest one is Amos Bronson Alcott, father of Louisa May Alcott. Oh. Mm-hmm, opened the Temple School in 1834, which was a conversation-based school that was considered really, like, liberal and hippie. They taught sex education. Right. And they they were really against corporal, corporal punishment, which was a big thing in yeah. education at the time. In fact... Um, Amos Bronson Alcott had this method of teaching where he really didn't believe in corporal punishment. And he believed that if a student messed up or broke the rules or did something, that that meant that the teacher had not 
fulfilled their responsibility to teach oh. them how to be a student so he would hold out his hand to the student and give them oh like a ruler and have them hit him and he said this would instill like a sort of a system of guilt yeah and <laughs> like That's... worry amongst the students so they would want to be good so that they wouldn't have to hurt him Interesting. Which is like... It's a weird way to build empathy in a person. It is. I don't know if I like that either. I don't think anyone should be hitting anyone. Yeah. (laughs) It is an interesting way to look at it. And this school um, taught two students that would later go on to be considered very well-respected writers, Mm -hmm. which were Elizabeth Peabody and Margaret Fuller. I'm pretty sure the Peabody Award is named after Elizabeth Peabody. I could totally be wrong, but I think that's... A lot of religious groups went after this school. They did not like it. Of (laughs) course. Like, I'm shocked. Presbyterians were furious. (laughs) And then Amos Bronson Alcott in 1844 also founded Fruit Lands. (laughs) (laughs) They just say Fruit Land. Okay, like Disneyland, but for fruit. Fruit Lands, Mm -hmm. which was a utopian agrarian commune in Harvard, Massachusetts. This is the stuff I was looking for. (laughs) Based on transcendentalist principles. And do you know what transcendentalism is? I do, but you can remind me. It's basically about um, respecting all life forms. Yeah, it's about one person being a part of a greater life cycle. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's, It's... I kind of like the idea. Yeah. Louisa May Alcott wrote a lot about Fruitlands in her writing Transcendental Wild Oats, mm. which I feel like I knew not, like my whole vision of Louisa May Alcott is just like little women. Yeah. So, and sometimes little men, if I remember. Oh, I haven't read Little Men. Me but it kind of surprised me that her dad had a commune. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we ever discuss this? <laughs> in England, this guy named James Pierpont Greaves founded the Concordium, which was a vegan community called the Alcott House, okay. which I bet was yeah. inspired by. Yeah. yeah, And it was in Ham Common in England in 1838. In 1843, members of the Alcott House, the one in England, yes, I, that was confusing to me, yeah. created the British and Foreign Society for the Promotion of Humanity and abstinence from animal food. Oh, that's a long name. It was. <laughs> it was led by this very wealthy woman named Sophia Chichester, who was a big advocate for vegetarianism. And then she would go on to help found the Vegetarian Society in 1847. Okay. That's a better name. <laughs> yeah, simpler. Yeah. This society was actually visited by Mahatma Gandhi in oh, 1931. That's very cool. The society had a magazine called The Vegetarian Messenger. And in one of the articles in 1851, there was discussion of alternatives to shoe leather. And that led some people to believe that within the organization, there were some vegans or at the very least people who believed in not using leather or using animal skins for things that weren't just in terms of diet. Yeah, There were several cookbooks published in the 1800s, which contained vegan recipes. Um, when Gandhi gave his speech uh, at the Vegetarian Society, as I said before, he promoted going meat-free for moral reasons, not health reasons. Right. At the time, vegans were just called vegetarians, mm-hmm. and then vegetarians were called lacto-vegetarians, <laughs> which I think we, it's a it's a good, good change. change. Yeah. Lacto. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start calling you that. That's technically what I am. I know. It's just so funny. (laughs) I'm hoping to shed the lactose someday. Yeah. In 1944, 
which was the year the term was coined. This is the story of that. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Several members of the Vegetarian Society asked that a section of the newsletter be devoted specifically to non-dairy vegetarianism, and the request was turned down. Now, Mm -hmm. Donald Watson was the secretary of the Leicester branch of the Vegetarian Society, Mm -hmm. and he like witnessed all that happening and he felt bad he thought that the non-dairy vegetarians should have something right so he decided to set up a smaller newsletter specifically for those members and he took the first three letters from the word vegetarian Mm -hmm. and the last two letters to get v-e-g-a-n vegan what (laughs) yeah that's literally it and he he abbreviated it he abbreviated it And he started a newsletter called The Vegan News. Wow. (laughs) He asked the readers... I don't know why I'm so shocked by this, but I really am. Well, the funny thing is, in the first issue of the newsletter, he Mm -hmm. asked the readers to suggest alternative names Mm -hmm. for non-dairy vegetarians. Mm -hmm. And the suggestions are all terrible. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, we'll just say vegan. (laughs) Yeah. The suggestions included... All Vegeta, <laughs> Neo Vegetarian, Dairy Ban, <laughs> Viton, which isn't that the name? No, I'm thinking of Vitas, who's mm. that singer who mm-hmm. sings the <laughs> that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Benivores, <laughs> Sanivores, and this is my favorite one, Beaumanger. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a good thing they stuck to vegan. Then I was like, I guess vegan, because no I'm one I'm talking really... about all of that, and he goes, okay, so vegan it is. <laughs> no, bon manger. Bon manger. B-E-A-U-M-A-N-G-E-U-R. Mm-hmm. It's a fun spelling. Yeah. Very French. Many hidden letters. <laughs> I love hidden letters. The sequel to Hidden Figures. <laughs> hidden letters. This one's about algebra specifically. Yeah. <laughs> Pythagoras would be so proud. So the vegan news, I wrote that it blew up in popularity, but it went from like 100 followers to 500. But I guess for the 1800s, or for the 1940s, that's not bad. Yeah, no, not bad at all. (laughs) If we got to 500 followers, I'd be like, we blew up. We blew up. (laughs) And they even had write-ins from people like George Bernard Shaw, who wrote in saying that he was resolving to give up eggs and dairy. Good for him. They renamed the newsletter from... The Vegan News to just The Vegan. Oh, okay. Catchy. Mm -hmm. And they formed The Vegan Society. I guess they said bye-bye to The Vegetarian Society. (laughs) No more. We're our own thing. Cutting ties. They (laughs) invented World Vegan Day, which is November 1st. Oh. And then they went ahead and made November World Vegan Month. (laughs) Oh, good for them. So They could just name that? I guess. I don't know. (gasps) What if we made, like, May world you know what i've been wondering, wondering month just <laughs> no one would oppose us no no one would stop us no one would do it free speech we could in 1947 the vegan society made clear that they were against all animal products not just foods in 1951 the society published a definition of veganism as the doctrine that man should live without exploiting animals okay that's a fair definition i'd say yeah In 1956, the Society's vice president, Leslie Cross, founded the Plant Milk Society, (laughs) 
which would lead to the company Plam Mill Foods. I know that they're talking about milk that comes from plants, but it sounds like he wants you to dig a hole, <laughs> put a carton of milk in there, <laughs> and see what grows. No! But Plam Mill Foods would go on to be the first widely distributed soy milk company Good for them. in Western Even society. Soy milk. Is soy milk the one that's hard to make? No, that's almond know. milk. Almond milk takes so much water. There's Guys, no, look it there's up. There's no simple There's solution. nothing good. Oat milk, I guess, is fine. But do we like it? Or do we just I think pretend it's fine. to like it? I, th- I mean, I don't drink milk by itself. Everybody look at that <laughs> TikTok. <laughs> Stop drinking milk, Anthony. Um, <laughs> I don't, I'm not a milk drinker by itself anyway. Right. I put it in other things. I, like, when it's in milk, it just makes me more thirsty. Like, it makes the milk taste dry to me. Interesting. I eat it, I drink it with, right, I don't know how you say it. I put it in my cereal. Yeah. And I don't notice a taste of any kind, mm-hmm. but when I put it in my coffee, I kind of feel like, oh, this is missing something, yeah. you know? Yeah. The American Vegan Society was founded in America mm-hmm. <laughs> in 1948, and the word was added to the Oxford Illustrated Dictionary in 1962. Oh. Vegetarianism and veganism was very popular amongst people the counterculture movement in like the 1960s and 70s. That checks out. Hippies really liked it. Yeah. (laughs) Not shocking. Well, they had a lot of focuses about diet, the environment, and they had a big distrust distrust of food producers. Yeah. So they all became vegan. And that also was like the beginning of the big boom of like organic foods Mm -hmm. being like something that needed to be listed on Right. Thing, like people wanted food to be organic. That was when that was really started. Because, you know, back in the day, it wasn't all food organic. Right. You know? <laughs> Didn't it all start organic? <laughs> Went downhill from there. Uh, veganism really was considered to become mainstream mm-hmm. in the 2010s. In 2019, The Economist declared that it was the year of the vegan. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> The global mock meat market increased by 18% between 2005 and 2010. Oh, wow. And the U.S. mock meat market, that's a tongue twister for you, grew by 8% between 2012 and 2015. And in the past two years, plant-based meat sales in the U.S. have grown 37%. Wow. doesn't shock me. doesn't shock me, but that's really big. That's probably a good thing. Well, I feel like... The Impossible Burger had a lot of success. Mm-hmm. So Same with the Beyond Burger. Yeah. yeah. Once they figured out that heme stuff, yeah. they were able to make a lot of fake meat that yeah. tasted <laughs> Once they figure out, oh, we could make this taste good. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't taste bland. In 2013, Oktoberfest offered vegan dishes for the first time in its 200-year history. Wow, the Germans have come a really <laughs> long way. <laughs> Even though they're the ones that are like... Don't but not be vegan for pregnant if your ladies. children are yeah. pregnant. Or... Yeah. <laughs> the largest share of vegan consumers globally reside in Asia Pacific, which is like Southeast and Eastern Asia. Mm-hmm. That makes Which, sense. like you were saying before, doesn't shock me. Their food is more easily accessible to people who don't eat meat. Um, studies have shown that there is a negative view of vegans from meat eaters, particularly from like right wing. Mm-hmm. Um, conservatives who think that vegans are trying to like take away their meat right again i'm not a vegan but i feel like i'm talking for them right now but like 
they're not taking your meat away. Like, they don't mm-hmm. really care what you're doing. They'd like it if everybody was a vegan. I mean, vegan. some vegans care what you're doing. There are vegans that are literally <laughs> trying to shut down the meat market. They're just a very small portion of them. Yeah. Well, like, my point is, like, they're not going to walk into a restaurant and be like, give me that. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're not, <laughs> they're not going to shut down Outback. But again, house. they're trying to, like, they think they're trying to help people, you know? Yeah. There was a study done with a thousand participants that showed that it was mainly the older and lower educated people that were that said this but they perceived vegans as a threat oh okay yeah that checks out (laughs) (laughs) which again is i people who've never met a vegan see vegans as threats exactly yeah and a lot of this is that the reasoning for it is just that they they don't understand it and they feel judged by vegans which i get Mm -hmm. vegans feel judged by them but that's totally the thing (laughs) like like it goes both ways i I was listening to um jenna and julian's podcast Mm -hmm. recently and it was an older episode but in it they were talking about how they get so many questions online about like do you cheat veganism Mm -hmm. like when do you have cheat days and like all these people who are like so confused by this life choice and it just becomes a thing where when you go so long without eating meat or dairy products or anything like your brain and your body stops recognizing it as food yeah which is the same thing when you give up things that you're allergic to like yeah you eventually don't crave it anymore so people who are vegan and who are like strict vegans tend to not want to have cheat days because it's just like gross to them yeah and also some people could get sick yeah it's true it's very very true so that's really everything on veganism that I got for us. Great. That was um, super interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing I thought it was that. cool to learn about it. Vegan awareness. I knew today. it would go pretty far back, but I wasn't shocked that there wasn't that much documentation of it mm-hmm. very far back, and then it kind of skips to yeah. modern times. I am surprised. I thought maybe it would be like this indigenous group was vegan, and then when, when this country got to that land, they yeah. just discovered them, and they were like, you don't eat meat? Why? Like, I'm surprised mm-hmm. there was none of that. Yeah. Um, but if the Indus River Valley civilization was vegan, like, that's a, or vegetarian, like, that's a very early civilization. Yeah, it know? is. So, very cool. Thank mm-hmm. you. We're Our... just going to jump right into Sarah's segment this week. I'll do a middle segment next week. Yeah. Sarah's <laughs> got a lot ready? to talk about. Yeah. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mom is serious. She's going to listen because we're Polish. So, she's going she's gonna to fact check me. Am I going to be craving pierogies after this? Oh, no, I'm not even <laughs> going to mention the food, but wow. <laughs> Love me some pierogies. This is obviously going to be a hefty topic. But I found this interesting, and there was a lot I learned, and I hope that you all find it interesting. Yeah. Two, so the Poles started as a West Slavic people uh-huh. who came to inhabit land covered in forests with small areas that tribes would cultivate as many civilizations started. Eventually, these tribes became under the control of dukes, who were the commander of an armed force that forced the chieftains of these tribes to form one large territorial unit. And the two greatest powers of that were the Vistulans and the Polony. The term Poland and Poles first appeared around the late 10th century when the Vistulans fell under the, under the control of Great Moravia, um, which was an area that was destroyed by the Mayagars, which we now know as Turkey, um, okay. or early Hungarians in the early 10th century. And that state that fell became under the rule of Mieszko the um, first in 963. I'm already impressed by how much pronunciation you're going to have. It's going to get really long, okay? <laughs> who united the Vistulin and the Polony into one large nation and founded the P.S. dynasty and the first 
Poland nation. Mieszko managed to solidify Poland as a powerful Slavic state by accepting Roman Catholicism as the national religion, thus allowing the papacy to recognize Poland as a sovereign state. It's really important to remember that at this time in history, there was the whole, the Germanic Holy Roman Empire. Okay. And then Rome. Okay. And the papacy. Okay. Which is so, like, why do they name it that? I don't understand. (laughs) From that point on Poland faced a lot of problems with the two powerful Christian forces at the time the Germanic Holy Roman Empire and the papacy who were different and fighting all of the time over land Poland fluctuated between war and peace with Bohemia which I'm going to mention a lot and is now part of the Czech Republic and Hungary while relying on Rome for aid when Mieszko died Poland stretched from the Baltic Sea to the Carpathian Mountains which is a similar size to the country now so in the year 1000 it was at the same size it is now but for most of the time in between it was not okay okay However, that's that's interesting. When Mieszko died, Poland just didn't know about primogeniture, which we talked about last week. We did. So it's good that we learned that, which is. Did everybody study? Yeah, did everybody study their vocabulary, which is the idea that the um, oldest child of the sovereign would immediately take over. Poland had never heard of this, didn't know what that was. Never met. So every time a king died, there was a lot of problems. (gasps) Oh, it was like because they didn't learn. They didn't learn. They didn't learn. So much of this is like. You just didn't learn. And it's going to be really frustrating. So for the next century, 100 years after their first king died, leaders were alternatively appointed with the help of either the Holy Roman Empire or the papacy, depending on who they were fighting with at the time. But they never had the support of both. So they were just always fighting somebody and whoever won were like, this is your king now. (laughs) In 1076... It sounds like a, like, funny custody battle of, like, divorced parents. Like, that's that's pretty much what it was like. In 1076, Boleslav II was crowned by Rome, but three years later was drawn into conflict with Stanislav, who was the bishop of Krakow. Krakow is one of the major cities of Poland. Uh Uh-huh. Okay? The king ordered Stanislav killed, but due to outrage of the public this caused the king then had to flee to hungary where he eventually died this established the cult of saint stanislav he was canonized in 1253 and he's a very important guy um and was thus established and became popular quickly there's going to be a lot of people in this named stanislav none of them are the same person okay every time i say stanislav new person but all (laughs) named stanislav because of this guy okay Uh uh-huh the cult of St. Stanislav invoked the people's rights to defend the freedom of religion against the state and ethics of power. Uh-huh. So it was their early, like, constitution. It was unwritten, but it was just a spoken thing. Because they'd be like, remember what happened to Stanislav. Okay. And they were like, it really invigorated people. <laughs> uh-huh. In the 12th century, Boleslav III, not his son, totally different guy. <laughs> not even related, attempted to establish a more stable system of government, which makes sense, after successfully fighting back Emperor Henry V. And his solution was silly. He divided the Polish state amongst his sons, which we learned from the Mongols, which to be fair hadn't happened yet, was not a good idea. And this failed by the early 13th century, less than 100 years later. Poland remained divided for almost 200 years and again, they were so big. They did it all. <laughs> and then in 
and the country completely transformed. Almost all the money made in the individual Polish states went to the church and the nobles, and the remaining population became semi-serfs. The old military also changed into a force of nobles who owned the land, as opposed to, like, a people's military. Mm-hmm. Then, in the 13th century, Poland began salt mining. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> this is still huge in Poland. Very important. And silver and gold mining, but namely the salt. Um, and this brought Poland into the European economy and allowed them to participate in the east-west trade. The crave that Good mineral. job. This is going to be one of my only thumbs ups to Poland. So serfs. Is this why you can be salty? Because in your ancestry? Yeah. <laughs> so salty. <laughs> Very funny. Because of this, serfs became free tenant farmers, and settlers began to travel to Poland for the first time. People were like, let's live there instead of trying to leave, um, and founded new villages and towns. Towns like Krakow received formal charters that allowed them to the autonomy to self-govern. Also really important. And mm-hmm. most of the city populations were German or German-speaking mm-hmm. because of their neighbors, while the countryside remained Polish. However... Poland during this time also became home to the Jews escaping persecution in the West. Boleslav V, unrelated to all the past ones, <laughs> granted them personal freedom and protection from forced baptism. So that a lot of Jews went to Poland, which those poor guys, if they only knew. Oh, from dang this, it. I was about to be like, oh, nice. <laughs> no, only if they knew. From this period, there was a form of feudalism in Poland, but it wasn't the feudalism like we think of in England and France. The power mostly rested with landowners and the clergy, um, but the clergy were actually the biggest proponents of reuniting Poland because they were Mm -hmm. still these separate states. Um, But there was a slim chance of it happening as the descendants of the PS dynasty continued to cut up their land. So that guy's sons had more sons and they just kept making it smaller, Mm -hmm. which is so stupid because that made them very susceptible. <laughs> Poland yeah. was threatened by the arrival of the Teutonic kings who conquered Prussia in the name of Germany and threatened Poland's borders. They were pretty much surrounded. In an interesting example of winner's history, Encyclopedia Britannica writes, quote, while German historians have traditionally stressed the civilizing and organizational achievements of the Teutonic Knights, the Poles have emphasized their ruthlessness and aggressiveness. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like them. In 1241, the states of Poland were invaded by... The Mongols. Yes! Yes! <laughs> Good job. Um, Duke Henry II of Cilicia, who was a, which is a big Polish um, city, and who was also a fierce advocate for reunification, died at the hands of the Mongols, which only made the colonization of Poland easier and drove them farther from reunifying. By the late 13th century, Wenceslas II... Who Good was King Wenceslas looked out <laughs> on the feast of Stephen? That guy. Oh, wait, is them. it spelled with a V? Um, it's spelled with a W, but he is from. So it might be the same yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, it could be the same guy, but there's going to be a lot of Wenceslas, so I don't oh, know which never one. Mind. Um, but this he was from Bohemia, the Czech mm-hmm. Republic, um, and he <laughs> crowned himself King of Poland and established an administration of royal officials, um, which was a permanent feature of Polish government for many years. But when Wenceslas died and his son was assassinated, this left space for John of Luxembourg, which we never talk about, um, to claim the crowns of (laughs) Bohemia and Poland. So then it was like Bohemia, Poland, and Luxembourg were all one place. 
I feel like I should get a t-shirt that says Pythagoras may have been a vegetarian and you should get one that says we don't talk about Luxembourg. We don't. Um, his pursuit of the crown of Poland was opposed by Vladislaw the Short. Poor guy. <laughs> who had already battled the Venceslaus. And he found an ally in Charles I of Hungary and nearly single-handedly led forces against the Bohemians, the Teutonic Knights, rival Polish dukes, and the German army. And because of this, even though he lost two Polish states, whoops, Wagesław was <laughs> crowned king of Poland, which is amazing. His son, which finally they figured out primogeniture. They did. <laughs> His son was Casimir the Great, and he's the only Polish ruler to bear this epitaph. Um, he managed to make peace with John of Luxembourg and reunified part of Poland that was lost to Bohemia. Mm-hmm. Um, he signed a peace treaty with the Teutonic Knights. Um, and between 1340 to 1360, Poland expanded by about a third again. Um, Casimir the Great also hosted an international conference in Krakow to discuss European issues. So under them, they kind of re-became like an important European state again. Then Casimir named his nephew, Louis I of Hungary, as his successor. His youngest daughter, Louis I of Hungary's youngest daughter, Hadviga, also known as Hedvig, is what you accept, call uh-huh, her, uh-huh. married Vajislaw II, Yahilo, not Yahilo. I, these are such hard words. You got it. <laughs> You're doing me. great. Who was the Grand Duke of Lithuania. So this linked the small kingdom of Poland with the huge Lithuania, which at the time was also compromised of Ukraine and Belarus. So this marriage encouraged Hedviga to and Hagilo to accept Roman Catholicism for himself and Lithuania, uniting the two countries as an even greater power against the Teutonic Knights. Um, and Haviga is still considered a notable ruler and is highly regarded by the Polish people for her marriage. But nice. she had no children. <gasps> Only Vagislaw's fourth wife, Sophia, bore him their children. And one of their sons, Vagislaw III Varninschik, ruled Poland. The other son, another Casimir, was the Grand Duke of Lithuania. So they had this great idea to unite Poland and Lithuania. And then what did they do? They separated them into two kings again. (laughs) They had it. It's like, it's so (laughs) annoying. Wagesław III, after being crowned king of Poland, was elected king of Hungary. And he eventually became active in the Crusades against the Turks. And unfortunately, he died in the Crusades. So Casimir became the ruler of both Poland and Lithuania. And they were back together again. Great. Casimir IV had almost a 50-year reign. um, And he was very involved with international relations. Um, He actually aided Prussia in a campaign against the Teutonic Order. It was unsuccessful. They (laughs) did lose. But he was able to sign a treaty. And in this treaty, Royal Prussia became Polish again. And that opened Poland's roots for the first time in like 300 years back to the Baltic Sea. Which is going to cause even more problems. Because one of Casimir's sons was elected to the throne of Bohemia and Hungary. While his other sons succeeded him in Poland and Lithuania. And thus... Poland repeated their mistakes as its loyalties were divided across countries with different interests because they keep splitting up monarchs. Mm. By the 13th century, the Habsburgs, who, big, big guys. Heard that name. (laughs) Yeah, really important. Moscow, speaking for all of Russia, and the Teutonic Order formed an alliance against Poland. 
they decided should the Jagalonians die, accords were made for a Habsburg succession in Bohemia and Hungary. And this actually happened in 1526. So Poland lost Bohemia and Hungary. And out of fear for Lithuania's annexation, the Union of Lublin, which was a, a treaty of sorts, established a federative state in 1569 between Poland and Lithuania who would jointly elect a mutual king grand duke, but they would have separate laws. Think of like the queen and Australia. Okay. Okay. Um, the dual Polish-Lithuanian state was one of the largest states in Europe. At its largest point in the early 17th century, it was nearly 400,000 square miles with 11 million inhabitants. Super big. And it was a multi-ethnic country inhabited by Poles, Lithuanians, Germans, Jews, Tartars, Armenians, Scots. It was a multi-faith country. And the term Poland, which is confusing, was used both for the entire state and also the strictly Polish part of it. The way... Encyclopedia Britannica mm-hmm. described this is that they didn't have a term for like Great Britain. Yeah. That didn't really exist yet. So it was Poland and Poland. <laughs> <laughs> um, which became very confusing. And even though the Commonwealth had its successes in that like the model of a constitution they made was really good, the country was weak in finance, administration, and military, which are three biggies. And now we're going to get into a lot of problems with Sweden. Okay. Which is ironic, because I have some Swedish heritage, too. And they're all just fighting each other. The naming of Sigismund III Vasa caused a 10-year struggle because Sigismund III Vasa thought that he should also be king of Sweden because his grandfather was king of Sweden. And Poland entered a 10-year war with that country, Mm -hmm. um, followed by the 30 years war that ravaged Europe. But Poland like technically remained neutral because they had just ended this war with Sweden and they're like, we're not going back to war and it's none of our business. So they were officially neutral, but Sigismund III, who I just don't like, supported. (laughs) (laughs) There have been so Sorry, like I can't just learn about the Poland t-shirt. No, like I like I have a lot of I have a I have a lot of Polish pride, but I have to say that they've had some of the stupidest kings because Sigismund the (laughs) Third, even though the government was like we're neutral, he gave money to the Habsburgs, which is not being neutral, and that led Poland to a war with Turkey amongst all the other people that were trying to invade. And Poland lost that war. <laughs> so and no real peace ever in the history of Poland was negotiated with Turkey. And her sister <laughs> was a witch. That's how I feel. <laughs> Additionally, not only was Poland at war with Turkey, some Polish magnates supported a guy named False Dimitri. Are you ready to find out who False Dimitri is? Yeah. He was a guy who claimed to be the son of Ivan the Terrible. So he was going around Russia being like, I should be the czar. I'm the son of Ivan the Terrible. And some Polish people were like, yeah, he should. And Russia was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I can't deal with how dumb these people are. Um, This support embroiled Poland in hostility with Moscow and led to many centuries of Russian hatred towards Poland. And went on for way longer than false Dimitri was around. So now, between 1648 and 1660, the Commonwealth was torn apart by an uprising in Ukraine and a war in the northeast of Poland. 
Ukraine had been colonized both by Poland and Ukrainian nobles. And this divided this divided them into the Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox, which I'm sure you've heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and the Eastern Orthodox were forced to turn to the Cossacks, who we know from Great Comet. Oh. So that's who they are. The Cossacks were essentially an army for hire who had protected the Ukraine from the Tartar raids. And the Cossacks fought the Polish with the help of the Tartars, their former enemies, because that happens all the time, um, and defeated the Commonwealth of Poland, separating Ukraine and establishing a Ukrainian monarchy. Also during this time, following the sudden death of their king, Vladislaw IV, Poland was left leaderless, and the Orthodox senator and the Catholic chancellor clashed over the appointment of Prince Jeremy... <laughs> That's such a modern Vish Vishnoveki. Yeah. Which drove the Cossack leader to make a pact with Tsar Alexei in Russia. And this pact began a war with Russia, and Alexei's army drove straight into Lithuania, which was still under Polish rule. And this was the first invasion of Poland in over 200 years. And because Russia was like, we're going to invade Sweden, good old Sweden was like, us too. <laughs> so if you know anything about geography, you got Sweden to the west and Russia to the east. So it was just flanking Poland. And Poland had not been trained for war. I told you they had a bad <laughs> military. I'm just trying to have a good time. So the prince, Prince Janusz Wadewil, I can't believe his names, signed a treaty with Poland, relinquishing his control of the country and just essentially handed it over to the Swedish king. And the Swedish occupation turned out to be a brutal one. They were like, maybe it'll be better than Russia. It kind of wasn't. Eventually, the Habsburgs, Denmark, and Prussia, in a crazy turn of events, because they'd been Poland's enemy for years, came to Poland's aid, and the Swedes were driven out. Um, and this created the Treaty of Oliwa, which marked the beginning of the decline of the Commonwealth of Poland. <laughs> <laughs> like, <Which one? laughs> the Treaty of Oliwa. <laughs> which decline? The big decline. <laughs> the great decline. <laughs> After two decades of war and occupation in the mid-17th century, um, Lithuania was like, we can leave Poland now. Um, <laughs> and they, the Commonwealth of Poland was just ruined and exhausted. There were famines. There were epidemics. The population dropped from 11 million to 7 million. Oh, no. Uh-huh. The number of inhabitants of Krakow and Warsaw fell by two-thirds and one-half, respectively. In 1668, King John Casimir abdicated. He was like, I'm done. Again, they picked the worst kings <laughs> and just went to France. And he left with a warning that Poland would fall to its neighbors unless it came up with a better army system. So he was like, I'm not the guy to do it, but this is my advice. <laughs> so then King Augustus II was appointed the new king and he led Poland into what is called the Saxon era, which is considered the lowest point of Polish history. So thanks for abdicating. Research since the 1980s has somewhat corrected the largely negative picture of Augustus II by stressing that they were operating in a context of political anarchy. So like, they were like, they did the best they could considering everyone was rioting all of the time. <laughs> but Polish politics was in a decline. There was a lot of religious bigotry going on in a mm. place that had previously been religiously open. And Polish nobles essentially became the laughingstock of Europe. They were not taken seriously as a nation at all. And then Sweden was defeated by Peter the Great of Russia 
And so a country that Poland had been at war with, Sweden, was taken over by another country Poland had been at war with, (laughs) Russia. So Augustus II was just like, okay, I'll do whatever you want, and just became very dependent on Russia. Uh And Russia kind of began to lead Poland instead of Poland. Um, Upon Augustus's the third death in 1733, there were two Augustuses. They equally were inefficient. Um, Stanislav (laughs) the first who was seen at this time as a symbol of Poland's independence and he was supported by France, he was elected. Um, The counter-election of Augustus III, oh, sorry, Augustus II died. Stanislav I appointed. Everyone was like, yes, we're going to be independent. France was like, yes, you are. We will help you. (laughs) And then (laughs) there was a counter-election of Augustus III and Russian troops came in and drove out Stanislav, their one hope. So then it was really just like oh, no. time for Russia to lead Poland for a while. Under Augustus III, the Commonwealth no longer participated in international relations and Poland passively just gave away Prussia. They were just like, <laughs> <laughs> literally just handed it over. <laughs> they were like, you can just take it. Um, we can't handle the land that we have. You just, someone mm-hmm. else take it. So during the Seven Years' War, um, Austrian and Russian troops marched through Poland freely. Uh, they just were like, <laughs> we're just going to come in here and just do what we want. And the king, Frederick, flooded the country with counterfeit money. <gasps> making Poland's economy even less valid. So the Commonwealth was being treated essentially as like an inn <laughs> for the armies of Austria and Russia. By the by 1749, two major political camps emerged in Poland, the Familia and the Republicans. In 1764, under Familia influence, Stanislav II, Augustus Poniatowski, these damn names, was elected as the last king of Poland. There would never be another one, thank God. And he was handpicked by none other than Catherine the Great because he had been her lover and she (gasps) felt that he would be dependent on her and she was super right. Um, (laughs) He was resented from the start. Conservative saw him as Catherine's tool and he lacked strong will and military inclination. Stanislav sought to reform the state by strengthening the the monarchy and the opposing Republicans wished to reform it by strengthening the military. So there was a lot of civil war. Russians occupied Poland for his entire rule um, and St. Petersburg, where Catherine was, wanted to keep Poland on a tight leash. In 1768, the Confederation of Bar was formed. It was anti-royalist and anti-Russian program um, that mingled patriotic and conservative overtones with religious objectives. So they were like, we want a better government, but really they were like, we're just very Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) We want everyone here to be Catholic. Um, And civil war erupted and lasted until 1772. The royal troops assisted the Russians. Um, At one point, the king was kidnapped by the Confederates or the rebellion the rebels Um, and then France and Turkey decided to help the rebels the movement strengthened Polish national ideas um, and it produced the first martyrs ever sent to Siberia out of Poland Um, but at the same time it also made Poland the most chaotic place Um, and so St. Petersburg decided that they would partition Poland and just split it up even more (laughs) so with because Russia and Austria were on the brink of war with Turkey, who had been helping Poland, uh, Germany got involved and they suggested um, a resolution of the Eastern crisis through mutually agreeable compensation, which meant that they all just 
took a chunk of Poland and they were like, that's yours now. That's for you. And this was called the first partition and under it, Poland lost one third of its territory and population. Oh like, my. Yeah, they just became part of all these other countries in Poland and no say in it. Um, and that, you know, stinks. In 1791, the Polish lower government, which was known as the Siem, um, and the king signed a new constitution which was the first in Europe that established a constitutional parliamentary monarchy. And it combined Polish traditions with the ideas of the Enlightenment, which would say that dynasties, not individuals, would henceforth be elected and the Sem would have to countersign all royal decrees. This was seen as unacceptable to Russia <laughs> and Prussia, who were afraid Poland would reclaim its lost land. So afraid of threats, the government just was like, never mind, and they tore up the constitution because they didn't want to be invaded again. Um, Russia and Prussia, in return for them saying never mind, diminished Poland's territory even further in the second partition in 1793. During this partition, there was a small but unsuccessful revolution, one of many. <laughs> um, but this one was notable because it was led by Kojutsko. He's really <laughs> important and I really want to get his name right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you all could see her face as she did that because it was just the, like she looked at it she was mad at it and then she was like I'm just gonna throw it out and then she said <laughs> well this guy's really important so I want to get right um Kojush I'm just gonna tell you what it's about K-O-S-C-I-U-S-Z-K-O Kosciusko yeah Kosciusko Sure. Um, <laughs> um, and he was taken prisoner by Russia because he led this revolution. Two years later, in the third partition of 1795, Russia annexed 62% of Poland's area and 45% of the population. But it gets better because Prussia took 20% and Austria took 18%. <laughs> We're What's left? Not very much. <laughs> Pretty much nothing. Um, and the three monarchs decided not to include Poland in their respective titles and thus obliterated Poland as a nation. So it mm. wasn't like Russia and the sovereign nation of Poland. They just were like, Poland doesn't exist anymore. Um, however, when Poland disappeared, the Polish question became a controversy all throughout Europe and affected European diplomacy for many years. Encyclopedia Britannica writes, quote, the 123 years during which Poland existed only as a partitioned land had a profound impact on the Polish psyche, <laughs> which I understand why. In the 19th century, developments of industrialization and modernization were not evenly distributed throughout Poland, depending on which country they were in. The nation was oppressed and therefore their political psyche became one of all or nothing. They had no interest in collaborating with the partitioners and the people did not trust the authorities. So even though there was no Poland, mm -hmm. the Polish people still very much identified themselves as Polish and wanted Poland to come back as a country, but not because of any collaboration. Mm -hmm. They were like, we want to come out all by ourselves. We don't, we don't want to compromise. We don't want there to be a give and take. It's truly, we get the whole thing back or we want none of it. Do you think that worked? No. no. <laughs> Why would it? The Poles never reconciled with their loss of independence. They had brief hope in the French military under Napoleon, who 
a bunch of Poles decided to join his military and help him in his tour of Prussia. As a sign of thanks, Napoleon reappointed a duchy of Warsaw and gave back to the city and gave back Poland the cities of Warsaw, Krakow, and Poznan. Napoleon really only saw this though as like a French outpost in uh-huh. former Poland. Um, and after his defeat in Russia, he gave Warsaw to Tsarik Alexander. Um, and, and that became the kingdom of Poland, but he really just like gave it right back. Krakow, however, did become a free city. So good for them. One city got out. After the Kazushko insurrection, there were subsequent uprisings inspired by this insurrection in 1806, 1830, 1846, 1863, <laughs> and a revolution in 1905. None of them were successful. <laughs> they all failed. <laughs> These four people. Somewhere in there, my family packed up and left. <laughs> Goodbye. (laughs) Many people. (laughs) There was. If you want to know why there are so many Polish immigrants in America, it's because of these failed revolutions. And out of these uprisings came the Polish Socialist Party, who opposed the social democracy of the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania. The Socialist Party was socialist. The social democracy was fascist. Okay. Okay. Slight but important distinctions. Uh-huh. Um, the Polish nation only really survived the 19th century because of the peasant masses. Because remember what I said about the people in the cities being like mostly Germanic, but the people in the country being yeah. Polish? That never changed. Okay. So the peasants were all Polish and they never lost sight of this like, we will have a, have a Poland again. Um, and they were just so dedicated to the Roman Catholic Church and they just were like, if we keep praying and we keep being <laughs> Polish and none of us are going to marry and have children with anybody who's not Polish, maybe we'll get Poland back. Um, <laughs> their goal was to, main, to maintain Polishness in all its senses and they were very influenced by Polish writers, um, of which there were several, that became notable in shaping their mentality. However, the, a rebirth of the Polish statehood would only be possible in the conditions of a major European upheaval, which brings us finally, ladies and gentlemen, to World War I. <laughs> For a hundred years, they were like, one day there'll be a big upheaval and we'll get Poland back. And for the first time, maybe ever, they were right. <laughs> Briefly. Uh, Joseph Pilsudski. Pilsudski. Joseph Pilsudski, yes, I know that one, became a military leader and he fought with the Austrians. He was a Polish man. In 1950, the Germans and the Austrians drove out the Russians from Poland. And on November 5th, 1916, they issued the Two Emperors Manifesto, proclaiming the creation of a Polish kingdom. But its status and borders remain undefined. Um, and it kind of just internationalized the Polish question of, okay, well, you said you're going to give it to them, but you drew no borders and gave them no land. So yeah. what are you going to give them? Um, and Pilsudski refused to raise Polish troops without a binding political commitment from Austria and the Germans. And they did, that didn't happen. Um, so he was imprisoned in Germany. Meanwhile, and alternative policy came from notable Polish figures that linked the Polish with the Franco-Russian alliance. After a promising offer from the Russian commander-in-chief Grand Duke Nicholas, 
Um, but these turn out to be empty promises. Mm-hmm. So two, both sides of the war were like, hey, Poland, if you help us, we'll give you your, your land back. And neither of them did. Um, these <laughs> poor people. It just like breaks my heart. The chances of Polish independence increased radically, however, in 1917 when the U.S. entered the war because President Woodrow Wilson had some notable Polish government friends. <gasps> hmm he spoke of a united and autonomous Poland in a January 1917 address, and on January 8th, 1918.13 of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points was that Poland would be declared an independent state. Nice. And they all were like, yay! <laughs> Thank you! From there, a Polish national committee was established, and it was viewed as a quasi-government. They were like, okay, you can make some decisions, but you need to hold on until we get, like, a real leader. Um... After the release of Pilsudski, the German-appointed Regency Council was put in his power, and he negotiated the German evacuation of the kingdom. Cool. However, he was opposed by the Polish National Committee. (laughs) They compromised in 1918, and Pilsudski remained chief of state. New borders were drawn under the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, and final recognition of Polish sovereignty came only in 1923, with the delay being due to a the big situation in Russia, which is that we were like, good or bad, we just don't know. Um, An armed struggle. Oh, there was also an armed struggle between the Bolsheviks and Poland, and that resulted in Russian attempts to carry the revolution westward. So the Bolsheviks were like, we'll take Poland. And Poland was like, no, no, no. (laughs) No, thank you. And the Bolsheviks were like, okay. (laughs) Because, you know, the Russian revolution was happening over there. Poland came back with an area of about 150 square miles and 27 million inhabitants. Um, and because of that interwar, which is the time between World War I and World War II, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Poland was actually the sixth largest country in Europe. So good for them. <laughs> but, you know, more problems are happening. Pressing political problems, such as the issue of minorities in Poland, um, made economics really difficult. Ukrainians mm-hmm. were about 16% of the population, Jews were about 10%, Belarusians were about 6%, and Germans were about 3%. Um, and this was an issue because Poland's entire like government idea was that like we love only Poland. And so <laughs> the rest of the people were like, okay, <laughs> now what does that mean for us? And yeah. they, they didn't really like it, yeah. you know, which I get. In May 1926, Pilsudski came out of a three-year retirement and he demanded moral and political cleansing. Uh, And he staged an armed demonstration intended to force the current president to dismiss the government. He was like, you know what? We're Poland and Poland only and we don't need a government. You know, all you need to do is like love Poland. (laughs) (laughs) This led to a lot of fighting in Warsaw um, and it ended in a victory for Pilsudski. His candidate for president... Ignacy Moschkiski, <laughs> sure, became president and remained in office until World War II. Pilsudski rejected fascism and totalitarianism, mm-hmm. but promoted an authoritarian regime um, in which his army, that was like his private army, kind of ruled the government. Um, he was worshipped by his supporters. Like people were like, "We love this guy because all he cares about <laughs> is Poland." Um, but he was hated 
vehemently more than any man in the world by his opponents. Um, but he did become a father figure for large segments of the population because they considered him the man that gave them like real Poland back. Um, but in May 1935, Pilsudski died, leaving Poland in a dictatorship with no dictator. 20 years of independence, however, had given the Poles a new confidence that <laughs> proved essential in the trials of World War II. They were like, we're back in better than ever. <laughs> in 1932, Poland succeeded in signing a non-aggression pact with Soviet Russia, and then two years later, it made a declaration of non-aggression with Nazi Germany. However, Nazi mm-hmm. Germany came over to Poland, when, which they referred to as the corridor, because Poland stood between them and Russia, and were like, knock, mm-hmm. knock, can we go through? And Poland was like, No. And mm-hmm. they were like, but you signed a non-aggression act. And they're like, well, what are you going to do about it? And Germany invaded Poland <laughs> is what they did about it. Um, and because of this, because Germany wanted to trot through their land and Poland said, no, we shouldn't have to, they reached out to Britain. And Britain was like, sure, we'll form an alliance. And then Germany was like, no, we attack. And Hitler launched an allied attack in Poland in 1939. On September 17th, 1939... The Red Army, the Russian army, mm-hmm. invaded Poland from the east. And on September 28th, Hitler and Joseph Stalin agreed on a final partition with the Soviets being like, I'll take this half. And the Germans saying, we'll take this half. Mm-hmm. And Poland was like, we signed a non-aggression act. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although technically they were in alliance with Soviet Union because the Soviet Union wasn't in alliance with Britain. So they were like, I guess. <laughs> But again, no one consulted Poland. They were like, <laughs> you just take it. They were like, hey. <laughs> and so the Holocaust came to claim the lives of some 3 million Polish Jews mm-hmm. um, who were herded into ghettos and killed in extermination camps, of which Auschwitz was but one. The Nazis also engaged in mass terror, deporting and executing non-Jewish Poles in an attempt to destroy the intelligentsia and extinguish Polish culture. This is like a really big deal that not you don't hear about as much in Poland, but yeah. like we when we went on our tour of Krakow, the tour guide took us to the University of Krakow, which is one of the most important European universities in the world, and they killed like all the students there because they didn't want like, yeah. young scholars yeah. to like question what they were doing. Um, it was really terrible. Priests and politicians were killed. Children of prominent citizens were kidnapped, and many Poles were forced into hard labor. When the Soviets promised an alliance with the Poles, they first agreed to an individual Polish army. However, this eventually changed into them wanting to take on Poland as a territory, and Poland was so weak and vulnerable at the time that they just had to agree. Um, The Soviets were also promoting a Polish communist activity, both in the USSR and in occupied Poland, where a Polish Workers' Party emerged in 1942. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill didn't really understand what Stalin was doing. Like, he didn't see the full scope of it. Um, But he believed that timely territorial concessions to the USSR would preserve the internal independence of post-war Poland. So he was like, if we just let them take care of it now, I'm sure he'll be good on his word and give it back, Um, which is not what happened. Hmm. Roosevelt and Churchill agreed with Stalin at the Yalta Conference in February 1945 to create a provisional Polish government of national unity. So they all agreed that there should be a government, but they also agreed that they needed to oversee it. The post-war Polish Republic 
which was renamed the Polish People's Republic, occupied an area some 20% smaller than pre-war Poland, and its population of almost 30 million people rose to nearly 39 million people in the next 40 years. Because the Holocaust altogether, with the expulsion of several million Germans and population transfers within the USSR, left Poland virtually homogenous in its ethnic composition. So they were Mm. finally, after all that time, just Polish. But that was no longer good. (laughs) In 1978, the election of Karol Cardinal Wojtyla, the Archbishop of Krakow, as Pope John Paul II, thank you, easy name, um, (laughs) gave the Poles a father figure and new inspiration. In 1985, when Mikhail Gorbachev, Gorbachev came to power as the leader mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union. His policies of of reform started a process that eventually led to the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe and the disintegration of the USSR. In 1990, the government adopted a shock therapy program of economic reform. This is a great idea. Uh, <laughs> it was meant to arrest, this is the word they use, Poland's financial and structural crisis and rapidly convert the communist economic model into a free market system. So they literally decided to crash the economy so bad <laughs> that they had to get a new economy. And it, like, worked. (laughs) (laughs) And integrated Poland into the new global economy. Hey, maybe that'll work for us. (laughs) Maybe. It would have to be the reverse. Um, The social cost, however, was very high. There was a lot of difficulty redirecting trade because they previously had done all of their trade through the Soviet bloc, and now the Soviet Union didn't exist. Um, The new government did, however, achieve two major successes, which was a formal recognition of a border between Poland and Germany. And after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, um, the evacuation of Soviet troops from the country in 1992. In 1996, the country had become a member of the Council of Europe, established economic ties within the European Union, and been admitted to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In 1999, Poland became a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, They also solidified a constitution in April 1997 um, and reformed the state structure by 1999. The new state structure introduced a three-tier system of administration and local self-government. It also included healthcare, pension, and economic systems that had been missing for many years. Most most visibly, there were numerous improvements in human rights, such as freedom of speech, internet freedom, civil liberties, and political rights in Poland. Um, And in 2007, Poland enjoyed the Schengen area, as a result of which the country's borders with other member states of the European Union have been dismantled, allowing for freedom of movement within most of the EU for the first time ever. Yay! And (laughs) that's the stupid history of Poland. Mistrovia! Mistrovia! At first I was like, it's not fair. They're so landlocked. <laughs> they have the mountains to protect them. They're 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 weak. They're vulnerable. They're susceptible. No, <laughs> their leaders were dumb, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, they kept thinking that if they had a king or whatever you would call it, what they called it at the time, as their leader, that they wouldn't get into wars with the other countries. Yes. But it never <laughs> no, because like I think I think part of the problem is that every country in the medieval era was looking to expand, and so Poland was also like we can expand. I, like again, I tried only to get down to like the border question, yeah. not even like the economic question. But like, it's real. It's really nuts. Like this. Poor- what they were the best at was hiding in the woods. 
<laughs> it's true though. Like it is something it's that true. something that is amazing. They were invaded so many times. They were the best at hiding. In the world. <laughs> it's true. It's true because like throughout all of this, there did maintain a people who were like, "We are Poland." You know, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of people out there who are fighting for the the return of Prussia. You know, <laughs> but the Poles were like, "No, we are Polish, and mm-hmm. we will be Polish, and we're gonna get Poland back." And they did. It took a really long time. They did over and over again. They did over and over again. No, they lost a lot. Not as much as France, though. <laughs> they lost less than France. There's, there's a Wikipedia page that I scrolled through that just had me cackling. It's a list of every battle fought in Poland. And then on the side, you can just scroll through it. It's like green means they won and red means they lost. Um, and there were a lot more victories than I would have thought, okay. you know? But it was, it, there are so many. I, if you speak Polish and you're listening to this or you are Polish, I like am really sorry for how I did these names. Like this is based off of my, I, the pronunciations of Poland I know from visiting Poland and just Google Translate. And anytime I laughed at how she said a name, I was not laughing at the name. I was laughing at her pronunciation. Because it's crazy. <laughs> and it's just, I, I mean, no offense to my motherland. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. Wow. I just don't know how to correctly do it, you know? Yeah, no, I don't know what all the symbols mean. I did my best. Um, I mean, no offense to my motherland. So thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I'veBeenWondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I'veBeenWonderingPodcast at gmail.com. I'm almost pouring the shots, Jane, so you better tell me what you want to know. Okay, I, I know it already. Okay, tell me. <laughs> Sarah. This is vegan. Yeah. Ah, Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? Okay. I feel like right now, as a world, we're all, like, in kind of, like, stop motion. Like, we're all on pause. And it feels like there's, like, no future. We're all feeling really, like, nervous about that. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea today mm-hmm. when I was watching this documentary about Jeff Bezos with your mother. Oh. Where they're talking a lot about technology. Uh-huh. I want you to talk about technology that scientists are saying is in our near future oh like juicy. scientists that is is likely to come soon okay we don't have yet i mean it doesn't have to be immediately it could be in the next 50 or 100 years but like let's talk about how what happens in the future you know yeah because there's gonna be one guys there is there doesn't is. feel like it but there's gonna it's be it's time to find out if flying cars are viable okay are you good <laughs> She's feeling really Polish. She's shaking up the vodka. Okay. Jane. Mm-hmm. You know what I've been wondering? Yeah. I want you to talk about the invention of photography. Ooh. Like, these are, this is a good combo. Yeah. Because I also, like, I don't understand how early photography worked. Like, why did they need those hoods? Well, just go to Michael. Great. Just go sit down. He's that old. <laughs> Bring a notebook. He's, that, he's not that old. Um... <laughs> No, I want to know, like, how early cameras worked yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean. Invention of yes. photography. A cool. Nice pairing here. Yeah. We didn't even plan that. Lovely. All right. Did you see that book I have? It's a stick down there on photography. <laughs> I will. Photography. Great. We have resources. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Encyclopedia Britannica, for supplying the entire history of Poland for me. <laughs> I'm going to take this shot now. Thank you so much for listening. This is, you know, you know what, what I've, I've been, been wondering. wondering.